0: Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today I want to talk about uterine birth defects and specifically a uterine septum. Uterine birth defects are a really interesting thing. I will say they're one of the things that have always fascinated me about reproductive medicine and so often they never present themselves or there are no warning signs until you reach infertility or you're getting an evaluation in this context. So it is something that is very surprising to people when they find out they may have something wrong with their uterus. A birth defect of their uterus that they had no idea about. Before we dive into the specifics about the different types of uterine birth defects, a uterine septum, the procedure to fix it, and things to think about, I do want to talk about this week's fertility in the news. So this week Paris Hilton came out and told us that she recently welcomed a baby with a gestational carrier or a surrogate. So I know in these fertility in the news segments, I'll often talk about celebrities and their own journeys. And I just want to say number one, thank you to anybody who is a public figure who talks about their own fertility struggles. That is so important for the rest of us. It really helps normalize things not being easy or natural. It helps normalize that everybody has a different experience. And it helps take away the idea that this one thing is ultimately the best. I'm also quite aware that nobody has any obligation to ever share their story. They do not have to. And so the fact that they do is just something that allows us to learn and take away common things. And one thing I love is to be able to use these opportunities to talk about other moments. So we don't know why Paris Hilton needed to use a surrogate. She has not told us and it's not our business. And this brings up a point about another recent celebrity, Priyanka Chopra said that she and Nick Jonas also used a gestational carrier to conceive and to welcome their daughter into the world. Now, the reason why this is interesting as she recently came back out and had to say or felt compelled to say that she needed to use a carrier because it was a necessary step because of medical complications. She was accused people were saying that she was outsourcing her pregnancy or renting a womb because of vanity or she didn't want to be pregnant or have the physical changes that come with being pregnant. And she all right said, I'm so grateful that I was in a position where I could do this. Our surrogate was generous, kind, lovely, funny, and she took care of this precious gift for us. And touching on the impact about the comments of her pregnancy, she said, I've had to develop a tough hide when people talk about me, but it is so painful when they talk about my daughter. I'm like, keep her out of it. I've been very protective of this chapter of my life because it's not about my life only, it's hers too. And we know that Both Chloe and Kim Kardashian also used gestational carriers for some of their children. So I think that this one hopefully is normalizing the use of a surrogate or a gestational carrier. Importantly, people need this step sometimes because they may not be able to carry a baby. I have patients who have uterine scar tissue. I've had patients who've ended up losing their uterus either due to Fibroids or bleeding or even cancer. I've had patients who've had multiple miscarriages or they can't get to a viable fetus and they end up needing to rely on a carrier to grow their family. I will say, so often it's really hard to make that transition from being the person who might carry your child to having somebody else do it. And even these celebrities are saying that that is a difficult transition. Kim Kardashian even said, Even though she has no regrets about using a surrogate, it was extremely hard for her not to carry two of her children. She was quoted as saying, having a gestational carrier is definitely different, but anyone who says or thinks it's the easy way out is completely wrong. People assume it's better because you don't have to deal with the physical changes, pain, or complications with delivery. But for me, it was so hard to not carry my own child, especially after I carried North and Saint. This is... Very important because it is normalizing that it's not just an easy way out, even if somebody is electing to. There's a lot of decisions that go in and very often someone has this hand forced. So ultimately, I love when celebrities are talking about this because it helps normalize sometimes an extremely hard choice that a patient may be having to make and seeing other people go through this as well is helpful. A note about terminology before we dive into some factors about your uterus. One is that you'll hear the word surrogate used very often in print and in magazines, and you'll hear people say it, and they're really meaning gestational carrier. That's the appropriate medical term, and I just want to explain the difference to you. A gestational carrier is a person who carries the baby that is not genetically related to them. So, for example, if my husband and I wanted to have a child and I could not carry it for whatever reason, we would do IVF taking my eggs outside my body. We would fertilize it with his sperm and make embryos. We would then have another person, the carrier, of whom the embryo would be implanted into and they would then carry the baby. This is technically different than surrogacy. It's used similarly because a surrogate carries a baby for somebody else, but true traditional surrogacy would be my egg and my body, but I'm carrying the baby for somebody else. So sometimes this is easier to imagine in the world if we had a gay couple and they obviously need a uterus and they need an egg. And so you would inseminate a person when they were ovulating with somebody's sperm for that person to have a baby and then hand the baby over to this other couple. Traditional surrogacy is really not a thing that most people do. It's quite frowned upon and in some states illegal. Even gestational carrying was illegal in some states, even New York, until in just the past couple of years. So really this side of the reproductive world, what some people call third-party reproduction, where there's a third person, is constantly evolving. And really everybody's trying to make it both ethical and fair and successful. So you won't find... Many people who believe that traditional surrogacy is something that should be done and you won't find many people who will do it, it does pose a lot of ethical and legal challenges. Like if it's my egg and I carry it and then I decide I don't want to turn it over, will any contract really supersede that when genetically it's mine? and I physically carried the baby. It is a legal gray zone. If it is my egg and my husband's sperm and somebody else is carrying it and the contract has all been written up and everything is really by the book, then even if that person wanted to keep the baby because they carried it, it is not theirs. Legally, it is a much cleaner argument. So even though all of these articles say the word surrogate, and I even used it, the real word was carrier. All of these celebrities that we're talking about used a gestational carrier and not really a surrogate. So hope that helps clear that up. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click Get Started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. So let's dive into the uterus. The uterus is completely fascinating. So the uterus starts out as these buds inside your body, and there's actually two of them. The uterus is what we know as the Mullerian system, and that's because of the origin of the tissue. And so you will hear us say, Mullerian anomalies, anytime we are referencing birth defects of the uterus. Now, these two little buds of tissue start out almost like little balls, and they elongate as you're inside your mother's womb. This tissue becomes the top one third of the vagina, the cervix, the entire uterus, and and the fallopian tube important to understand that embryologically the tissues that become the ovaries and the tissue that is the lower two-thirds of the vagina are separate than this Mullerian structure so again upper one-third of the vagina cervix uterus tubes so this can defunct in many different places but if we talk about normal what happens is these two little buds elongate so they grow They then fuse together and then the midline portion which would connect these two separate structures reabsorbs forming the top of the vaginal canal, the cervix with a central opening, the uterus connected with one opening on the inside, and then two independent fallopian tube structures. Now, if this area doesn't then connect to the lower two-thirds of the vagina, you get what is known as a transverse vaginal septum. Transverse meaning it's going horizontally. People know they have a transverse uterine septum because they don't get a period. This is one of the causes and something we look for when somebody presents with what we call primary amenorrhea. Primary amenorrhea means you have not had your period ever. And if you have a complete obstruction because these two tissue planes never fuse together, you'll never get a period. It doesn't mean that your ovaries aren't working or your uterine lining isn't shutting, but you actually will get all the menstrual blood backed up behind the septum. There's a variety of presentations, but the truth is these are usually diagnosed well before people come to me now. So that's one aspect on this realm of abnormalities that can sometimes happen. When it comes to actual abnormalities of the uterus, you can have so many different types. So if neither bud forms and that can happen. You can have complete failure of your uterus to develop, and this is called Mullerian agenesis, so no Mullerian structures, and it's also known as meyer kuster kusterhauser mrkh and this is interesting because similarly, people who have MRKH present with no period. They do have a vagina that's shortened, but that lower two-thirds formed normally, so externally, Everything is normal and everything formed just like it should, but suddenly they never got a period. Similarly, they have ovaries because they are a different tissue types. So breast development and hormonal changes happen as per the norm, but just there is no period. And then on evaluation, they are found to have no uterus. So people who have mrkh, if they ever want to carry or have a child, well, if they want to have a child. They usually need to have a carrier if they want to carry a child. These are the types of people who, right now, have been in studies receiving uterine transplants. So, transplanting a uterus from somebody into somebody who was not born with one in order to allow them to have a child, and that has been done. So, that is the most severe form of these Müllerian abnormalities, as a complete failure of development. And then you have a variety of different ones. So you can have just one side form and that's called a unicornuate, like a one-sided uterus. You can have two completely independent uterine structures, like they never join together. So this means that you end up usually having a normal lower vagina, but then you have a vertical septum at the top of it, what we call a longitudinal septum. You then have your cervix is actually divided into two different pieces and then you have a Independent uterine cavity, so two different uterine horns that actually diverge off into different directions, and each uterine horn has its own fallopian tube. There's some different versions of this, where one horn may be under or overdeveloped, where the vaginal septum may obstruct one cervical opening completely. But essentially, what is happening is those two different Müllerian buds elongated, fused with the lower two thirds of the vagina, but they never fused together, so they were complete separate structures. There is partial fusion with partial reabsorption of the midline structure. And that is what we know as a bicornuate or a heart-shaped uterus. And in this one, what we see is that people have a normal lower uterine cavity. But as you go towards the top of the uterus, it actually divides off into two horns, like really like a heart. So the fundus or the top of the uterus is like a heart. And then each fallopian tube comes off the top of the heart. And then we have a uterine septum. Now, a uterine septum is actually the most common uterine birth defect. A uterine septum is essentially all stages of development happened perfectly normal. So your Mullerian ducts elongated, they fused together, they fused with the lower two-thirds of the vagina, and then that septum started to reabsorb, but it failed. You can have failure at any point. So you can have complete failure where essentially you have a septum completely through your entire uterus, or you might have... Partial failure of reabsorption, which is much more common. The septum might extend two thirds, one half, one third of the way into your uterus. Because the uterus did completely fuse together, it's not necessarily heart shaped on the outside, even though it might be heart shaped on the inside. So the outer portion fused. If you had surgery someone went and took your appendix out and they were looking at the camera, you know, just at the outside of your uterus. They would have no idea you had a uterine birth defect. Whereas in all the other ones, they would come out of there saying, something's wrong with this person's uterus. It's heart-shaped, or there's two different uteruses, or I only see one tube-like uterus. So all of the other abnormalities would reveal themselves externally on laparoscopy except a uterine septum so the outside of the uterus looks completely normal similarly for a uterine septum even on vaginal ultrasound you do not always capture that there is a uterine septum and that is because the uterus is a potential space unless there's something inside of it like a pregnancy or water or dye so if you're just looking vaginally you might not notice a septum I will say if you're looking at the uterus at the right time of the cycle, specifically when the lining is nice and thick, you very often can see a septum on vaginal ultrasound, but sometimes... It looks normal, and that's not the case for bicornuate and didelphus and unicornuate. Usually, those also can be caught on just vaginal ultrasound because the entire structure of the uterus looks abnormal. All right, well, let's talk about a uterine septum just a little bit more. So a uterine septum, as I said, is the most common type of uterine abnormality in the general population, and this is a little bit hard because not everybody goes and gets an ultrasound of their uterus to know if they have a septum it appears that the prevalence of having a uterine septum is going to be about 2% of the overall population. However, when you look at the population of people who are reproductive age and who have infertility, it appears that the incidence is even higher, up to 20% or more of patients who seek care for infertility. Now, if you have endometriosis or pelvic pain, it does appear that the incidence is even higher, up to 30 to 40%. We've long known that Mullerian anomalies are associated with an increased prevalence of endometriosis. Of course, endometriosis is a very complex disease. I have content on that if you want to learn more about it. But the take-home message is that endo is when your body has a reaction to endometrial-like tissue that is outside the uterus. We do think that in patients with Mullerian anomalies, the reason why we see a higher incidence of endometriosis is because since the uterus is abnormally shaped, there is higher backflow or dysfunction of menstrual bleeding. And if we just think about the uterus in its normal shape, those contractions are allowing us to have menstrual blood shed primarily through the vagina. And if there are adhesive bands or areas that are avascular or the uterus is just misshapen. It might contract abnormally, therefore predispose blood or menstrual products to go through the fallopian tubes and cause what we know as retrograde menstruation, which is not the sole cause of endometriosis, but definitely something we think contributes. And the higher incidence of endo in patients who do have uterine septums does support this idea. So overall, uterine septums Are diagnosed higher in a patient population with infertility. I want you to think about the septum being an avascular piece of tissue because it was that connecting band. So it does not have the same blood supply that the rest of the uterus does. And this can cause problems. Primarily, it can cause miscarriage. And this is really easy to visualize because if a pregnancy is entering into the uterus, it is coming in through the fallopian tubes. Remember that egg and sperm meet in the fallopian tube, and that is where fertilization takes place. That embryo then grows and develops in the fallopian tube and enters that uterine cavity five to six days later where it is looking for somewhere to implant. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Now, normally the uterus is like an inverted triangle, so it has It's choice of the walls on where to implant, but if there is a piece of tissue dangling inside the uterus just hanging out there, that is going to be very attractive because the embryo is essentially going to bump into it. When it tries to implant into this avascular tissue, there is not enough blood supply. This is avascular. It does not have what a placenta needs. And so you get pregnant. The pregnancy begins to implant. You get a positive pregnancy test. And so in people who have a uterine septum, the incidence of miscarriage can be up to 80% of pregnancies. And often. This is how people find out they have a septum. They are being evaluated for miscarriage. The old school train of thought was that one, a septum causes miscarriage, not infertility. You and I can argue if we think miscarriages contribute to infertility because I sure think they do, but a septum causes miscarriage. It is something that doesn't have to be removed unless somebody's experiencing miscarriage. So if found incidentally, perhaps it does not need to be removed. I've never agreed with that and I'm probably extremely biased. One, because I'm a fertility doctor. Two, I had numerous miscarriages and if there was anything I could have done that would have decreased my chance of losing a pregnancy, I would have done it no no doubt. So the idea that you might find something known to be associated with a high chance of miscarriage and the game plan will be let's wait and see if you miscarry before we take care of it has never set right with me. I will say now there have been newer studies looking at meta-analysis and reviews of prior smaller studies showing that for patients with either a history of miscarriage or primary infertility, removing the septum does improve pregnancy rates and live birth rates. And so this is something that I've always thought made sense is that a septum can definitely contribute to infertility. Again, prior talk was, oh, it was just a miscarriage thing. But you have to imagine that depending on the characteristics of the septum, some of them might prevent a pregnancy from implanting completely, specifically if they're very big or truly don't have any vascularity in them. So anytime I find a uterine septum, I recommend removing it. I wouldn't do an embryo transfer into somebody who had one. Like if you declined having it resected, I would wish you all the best. And where can I send your records? Because the data there to me, is very clear on what the right choice is. I will say there's no randomized control trial, which of course is the gold standard study. There actually is one going on right now, so we will see what the results of it show. But as of this moment, if you have a septum, I'm going to want to remove it. So what does removing a septum look like? It's what we call a hysteroscopic septum resection or a metroplasty. This is actually the only type of Mullerian anomaly that we actually recommend repairing, even though some of the other ones can be associated with increased risk of preterm birth, pregnancy loss, or need for C-section, largely because of abnormal positioning of the baby inside the uterus. Those we don't always recommend removing because you might not get a better outcome, but because the septum is avascular and the rest of the uterus is very intact, this is actually one of my favorite procedures. So I really enjoy these. So what you do is This is a day surgery procedure. Some people do it in the office and other people do it in the operating room. It all depends on the office setup and every scenario is different. I personally do them in the operating room. I like patients to be completely asleep, but I know friends and colleagues who essentially do all the patients awake and that is fine, but I do it in the operating room. So the patient goes to sleep, so you don't remember any of it, and it typically takes about 20 to 30 minutes. A speculum is placed into the vagina, and then the hysteroscope, which is a camera, is all assembled, and there's a water port and an operative port and a light port. And this long, skinny camera gets placed through the cervix into the uterus. And then you have water coming through that camera and it pushes the uterine walls apart and you're able to see the inside of the uterus. Again, remember the uterus is a potential space. So once we can see inside, then you can clearly see that septum. And it's really quite impressive very often because you see almost like a tunnel going towards each fallopian tube. You then will take little tiny microscopic scissors and you will place them through this operative port And while you watch it on the camera, you'll just take these little cuts, these little tiny cuts, these little snips with these what we call cold scissors, meaning there's no cautery, there's no heat, there's no burning, there's nothing like that, just tiny scissors. And we are cutting that septum up to the level of where the fallopian tubes are, essentially just removing that avascular piece. And it doesn't bleed while you're cutting it. It's this white avascular tissue. So you're cutting it up to the level of the blood vessels until it starts to bleed a little. That's how you know you're getting to the good tissue. And you want to make sure it's even. And then... Once you've cut up to that level and you see some blood vessels, you're done. That's the procedure. Afterward, I was trained that when you go and you cut on the uterus, there's always the potential for scar tissue. So I'm a strong believer in trying to prevent scar inside the uterus anytime you operate there. So I usually place a uterine balloon which just keeps the uterine walls apart and then I place patients on estrogen and antibiotics. Estrogen encourages growth of the uterine lining, so we're encouraging that endometrium to grow over that area where we just cut. And think of the endometrium like silky, smooth. It's not going to scar if we can get that to grow over antibiotics are also going to prevent infection and we very frequently use doxycycline which has some anti-inflammatory properties and then use progesterone to have a coordinated bleed and then follow up with a saline sonogram ultrasound with water in the office to make sure the septum is completely gone. That little balloon stays inside the uterus for about a week and then you take it out. It feels like a plastic tampon that is inside your uterus with the tail part hanging out in your vagina. I know it's strange, it does cause some cramping, but it is important. Now, no surgery is going to be without risks, and this is why I really think it's important to make sure that you're doing this with somebody who is really comfortable with uterine surgery. And that might be your regular OBGYN, depending on where you live, may do a ton of these. It might be a fertility doctor like me. I will tell you we're the original experts on inside the uterus surgery because we really want to get it perfect for that embryo to go in. And now some minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons are also becoming very familiar with complex intrauterine surgery as well as laparoscopy. So you're gonna have to ask your doctor or depends on who you see and your fertility doctor, if you have one, probably is gonna be a good resource if either they do it or who they trust to do this surgery. It's my favorite surgery. So I'm not sending you anywhere else. When we talk about the risks of the procedure, the most common are going to be failure to get the entire septum. So maybe there's some residual, so needing a second surgery. There could be a risk of scar tissue, as we already said. So you take out a septum but then you have some scar resulting. And then there could be something called uterine perforation, like cutting a hole in the top of the uterus. This can happen either upon placement of the camera or if somebody dilates the cervix, which I don't do anymore, but some people are trained to dilate open the cervix before they put the camera in. And that's a dangerous time because you can't see the uterus. You're just going off feel. But because in the surgery, there really is typically no heat or anything involved. If you did run into the circumstance where a hole was poked inside the uterus, typically it will heal up just fine, but that is a risk. So very experienced hands are gonna be necessary because the more you operate on a uterus, the more you understand the boundaries and when to stop. Now, after a septum resection, once it's all healed, your chance of miscarriage is going back down to your age-related normal for almost all patients. There are some exceptions where like a complete septum when it goes all the way through might be a little bit harder, but that's excellent news. There is so often in reproductive medicine very little we can do, right? You didn't cause your infertility or sometimes there's nothing I can do to fix the problem. So to have something where I can say this is the problem and there is something to fix it and it's going to improve your outcome, that's fantastic and I love that. So these are really rewarding all the way around because you see a visible difference and you see a clinical outcome difference and so this is another reason why it's so important to have an evaluation of your uterus before you do an embryo transfer and i know that sounds so crazy like you might say obviously i want to get my uterus evaluated but i am telling you there are people practicing ivf fertility doctors who don't do that they do not evaluate the inside of the uterus before they put an embryo inside, it boggles my mind. But to me, if we know symptoms occur in a higher incidence with people with infertility, pregnancy loss, and endometriosis, every single person in my patient population needs to be evaluated. And when you've spent the money, time, physical, emotional energy going through IVF, man, we got to do everything possible to give you the highest chance of success with that embryo. And last thing before I answer some questions is that Not everybody who has a septum has to go on to have IVF. I know I've said it a couple times, but just for clarity's sake, if I have a patient and everything else is normal and we do a septum repair, sometimes we will give them a length of time to try to get pregnant naturally depending on their clinical circumstance. So definitely important to have a discussion with your doctor about your age, your family planning goals, and what you want to do next. All right, Well, right, I'm going to answer some of your questions. This is For Fertility's Sake, our weekly Q&A. As a reminder, we're going to be doing more episodes answering the voicemail. So the Aswoman voicemail, you can call 657-229-3672 and leave a message. We'll do episodes answering your questions and playing your voicemails. And that's a really good way to get your question asked because you can also ask a question on Mondays on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD, but I get tons of questions and we pull the best we can or the most common but we do not get as many voicemails so again 657-229-3672 is the number and we look forward to hearing your questions so if we dive into some of the questions all right not ovulating on letrozole or clomid why is there another alternative so letrozole and clomid are both oral ovulation induction agents if we think about how ovulation occurs the brain sends out fsh which is follicle stimulating hormone fsh works to tell the ovary to to grow a follicle or an egg because there's one egg inside each follicle. Now, FSH, is the hormone made from the pituitary gland. And so letrozole and clomid both work to tell the brain to send out more FSH. Clomid binds to estrogen receptors on the brain, and estrogen is the signal that tells the brain to release FSH when it's low. So if clomid fills up the estrogen receptors, the brain thinks there is no estrogen and it sends out more FSH. Letrozole works similarly, but it decreases estrogen in the bloodstream. So to both of these, the pituitary gland must work to send out FSH. So one common reason for not responding is inappropriate use in patients who are not ovulating because they actually have functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, meaning their brain, their hypothalamus, and their pituitary gland are not making hormones appropriately. This is due to weight loss, caloric restriction, stress, eating disorders, overexercise, chronic disease, or more. So in FHA, you have to actually give somebody FSH to get them to ovulate. Another and more common reason is refractory PCOS. If we Think about PCOS, we're telling the brain to send out FSH, but it's not a strong enough signal with either of these medications to get the ovary to respond because there's so many follicles that this FSH then gets diluted, is the easiest way to think about it. You can also try to give FSH in this circumstance. Of course, FSH is what we give with IVF, and sometimes it's not safe to do it for ovulation induction because it has a potential to get so many eggs recruited, not just the one you are trying to get. With ovulation induction. So it's really going to depend on your circumstance. So you might hear that refractory to oral ovulation induction agents like clomid and letrazole, your next option might be to move on to IVF. All right, does DOR, which is diminished ovarian reserve, always end up using donated eggs? No hope for IVF with your own eggs. Absolutely not. I This one's going to get me all fired up because I actually see patients probably every week who have low ovarian reserves. They don't have many eggs who are essentially paternalistically told that they have no options to get pregnant with their own eggs and that they need to go on to use donor eggs and we've gotten a lot of them pregnant. It is not an easy road, so I'm not going to act like it's rainbows and unicorns, but having low ovarian reserve means you have fewer eggs. It does not reflect the quality of the eggs. So one, if you're young with low ovarian reserve, are absolutely still an option really almost no matter how low your amh is as you get older and you have a lower percentage that's genetically normal it doesn't mean that it's not an option especially if there's some other reason if you have tubal factor or male factor You might need IVF. You just might need more cycles in order to find the embryo that is genetically normal. And so that is something to really carefully talk to your team about. But if you do not feel ready for donor egg, do not let somebody push you in it. Somebody might not be wrong. And I will tell patients this. It will probably be cheaper for you to get to a live born baby if you do donor egg. But that's very different than saying your only choice is donor egg because That risk-benefit ratio should not be mine to make. I just need to be transparent about it. And I'll have some patients say, you know, you're right. Looking at everything, just having a baby is the most important. And financially, that option makes sense. So let's do it. And I will have other people say, my dream is to have my own genetic child. And if it takes multiple cycles... Then I understand what we're up against, but that is my dream, and maybe it could be cheaper with donor egg, but this is the goal that we're shooting for. So I think that's really important to have somebody who is going to talk through that with you. All right, best tips for the embryo to implant during the two-week wait are avocados and pineapple a myth? Well, yes and no. Eating avocados and pineapple are not going to do anything magic. I mean, I wish they would. But ultimately, eating whole fruits and vegetables have a lot of good vitamins and nutrients, which are good for the endometrium, the lining, implantation, and early embryo development. Pineapples have become a thing because they do contain something called bromelain. And bromelain, so the core of the pineapple, it's the inside part, has been thought to be a mild anticoagulant like aspirin. So the hypothesis is that if you eat a pineapple core, you're increasing the bromelain and then your blood will be a little bit thinner and that might help the embryo as that placenta is trying to latch into your own blood supply. To be fair, that's not been proven, but that's a hypothesis. Pineapples are ultimately good for you, so there's no harm in doing that. And other tips, I usually just say, this is pregnant until proven otherwise, so don't smoke, don't drink, don't use marijuana, don't go scuba diving or skydiving or crazy behavior, but take care of yourself. Don't just take off of work, have good things to distract you, but try to get good sleep, take your vitamins, go on walks, hear the birds sing, and ultimately live your life. Embryos implant when you are out in the world doing your normal thing. So go and do your normal thing. How can antiphospholipid antibody syndrome be treated? I also have PCOS and hypothyroid. So antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is actually an autoimmune reaction to a pregnancy and it causes your blood to clot and form blood clots in the placental vasculature and can cause pregnancy loss. Classically, it can cause more midterm pregnancy loss like second trimester. It can also be associated with preeclampsia or some other placental syndromes later on. Checking for any antiphospholipid antibody syndrome should be a part of the workup for pregnancy loss. It's just blood work, so it's super easy to do. And if you have it, you then should be treated with aspirin and Lovenox upon a positive pregnancy test, and you'll be on those medications throughout the entire pregnancy. So it definitely is a different treatment. It's not something we screen everybody for. It is not something that causes blood clots in the absence of a pregnancy. It's definitely a specific reaction to a placenta or a pregnancy, but it is something that you should consider getting checked for if you've lost multiple pregnancies. All right, well I hope you enjoyed the Q&A. Again, you can ask your questions on Monday at Natalie Crawford MT on Instagram or you can also call the voicemail 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate review and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.